Father, I would uh, ask that you would give us insight as to how the gospel came to us and the works of Peter and John, the apostles, and Stephen, the martyr, uh, and all of the people, Silas and Barnabas, that we see in the book of Acts. May they be an inspiration to us. And Father, seeing what they have done and how they dedicated their lives, may we not be complacent or apathetic. May this spur us on to love and good deeds, seeing what you did and how you have built your church. We ask, Lord, for wisdom in absorbing these words, that we might have those convincing proofs translated to us and incorporated into our thinking, that we might glorify you in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. So the book of Acts, it begins in verse 1. It says, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. And so these are many infallible truths that are written down for us. Now, all you have to do is watch YouTube and you see people like Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins and the atheists, the new atheists that are out there. And, and you can see how they argue against the existence of God, that we are it. This is all there is. There is no deity which is, is out there. There is no design to the universe. It just appears that there is design to the universe. And this book of Acts, again, says many infallible truths. What that means is there is an inability to prove it wrong. There is so much information that it is overwhelming that this is true. And that's why Luke says many infallible truths, not one, not two. There are almost, it's enumerated to such a point that you couldn't count them. The field of apologetics, you can go forever in the field of apologetics. You can pick any science, any one of the sciences, and you can investigate it and see how a design is in there. You know, in chemistry, if you've had a chemistry class, I had chemistry classes twice that I remember. I really liked chemistry. I didn't like the moles and all of that stuff, if you know what, uh, calculating what a, a chemical compound will turn into. You've got to do all that uh, math and that task of figuring that stuff out or where the electrons go and if they transfer to something else and what's an acid and what's a base. And, and we made caps out of paper that fired off and it was a lot of fun. We had our... Uh, Mr. Love in the high school chemistry that I was in, he threw sodium into water. And, oh, that was quite exciting. A nice explosion that took place. Uh, you never want to put plain sodium into water. It will explode. That is a very dangerous thing to happen. And, and figuring out what a, an electron is, is it a wave, is it a particle, and what distilled water is, and how that takes place, and table salt, the, the sodium and the chlorine are both deadly poison, but you to put them together and you put it on your steak and you think, oh, this is really good. And chemistry is wonderful, but to figure that out, you know, the periodic table of elements. When I was in school, there are many more elements now down at the bottom. When I look at it, I go, where did all these elements come from? And some of them do not 
exist naturally on the earth. We have created them and we use them for different things. And you look at that and you start with hydrogen and it has one electron. And then you have oxygen, which has two electrons. And you keep on going with the nucleus and the electrons floating around. It's almost like it's by design. Go figure when you look at that. You know, I had botany classes. I loved botany when I was in there and you're figuring out photosynthesis and how the sun's energy is turned directly into sugars which provide the plant with food and how does that happen? And then the plant dies and the nutrients go into the soil which the new plants take up and photosynthesis repeats. It's almost like it's a cycle. It's almost like it's designed. Or you look at earth science and you see that the oceans are vast and water evaporates and is carried over the land and the water drains down the land and it flows from the rivers and the rivers go back to the, and it gets all filtered when that water goes back to the ocean. You go, what? It's a cycle. It's almost like it's a design. Or you look at biology and you look at the human eye or the way that the body works or inside the cell, all the functions that are inside the cell. And, oh, it just happened. I can't, I can't, I can't believe that. All the different parts in the body that we have. If you take the eyes and the brain and the liver and the pancreas and the stomach and the intestines and the muscles and the sinews and the bones, all of those would have to come together simultaneously to get what we have today. And guess what? It's impossible for that to happen. But people don't want to look at that. They don't want to retain the knowledge of God. They say, we did this all by ourselves. And there are so many infallible proofs. And you can go to the area of philosophy. You know, people, they have an objection to, why is there so much evil? If there's a God, there wouldn't be evil. Excuse me, if you're saying there's evil, there must be good, and there must be an ultimate standard for good. And so if there's an ultimate standard for good, and there are laws that govern that good, there must be a lawgiver. So you're objecting to the fact that there is evil, but you are also saying definitively that there is good, and there is an ultimate good. So you're saying God exists. So what was your question? And that's, you know, just that philosophy. You go through that type of thing and you argue with somebody and it just kind of stumps them. But they refuse to believe. I recently ran across this one phrase. I can't even remember the phrase. It is uh, information. It's information overload psychosis. Information overload psychosis. Because there are people out there, especially in the political realm or dealing with this gender ideology or the critical race theory or the wokeism that is out there, if you engage them in a conversation, even though you give them infallible proofs, like there are only biologically men and women, and they want to say, no, that is not true. They want to take truth and they want to split it apart. And a person wrote an article about this saying, yeah, it's information, it's a psychosis, overload of a psychosis. People, they're stuck in this and they can't get out. And it's because they have gotten so much information from so many avenues, they are unwilling to entertain anything to the contrary. And when you open up their mouth, their only reaction is, Stop! And they start yelling and screaming. Have you seen any of those videos where those who hold to those particular ideologies, when they get upset, when somebody gives them information, they just start screaming at the top of their lungs. Their eyes get really wide, their mouth opens, and just 
blaringness comes out of the vocal cords and they won't stop. And then when you try to talk again, they stop you or they'll use physical violence against you. I know that the, the guys like Nate and Rick, they go down to the Planned Parenthood in downtown San Diego and they tell me that the people will walk up with a bullhorn, get right in their ear with a bullhorn, and they'll yell at them through the bullhorn right into their ear. And, and they, they want to perform violence. It's anti-fun, some other people that are down there. They want to hurt the people, but they're just shy of that. And, and that's the tactic that they use. They use violence. They don't want to hear the truth. But there are many infallible proofs. And so how do you get these infallible proofs to somebody so that they understand, so that they have the ability to believe that they can go to heaven. Well, you can't. But we're still supposed to communicate it in order for some to be convinced. Many will not. Most will not be convinced of the gospel. And what is the gospel? The gospel is the good news. It is that we are all sinners. The world is full of sin. It is destined for destruction. But Jesus came to this earth to deliver us from sin. And if we confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. If we don't do that, we don't go to heaven. We exist apart from God in hell in different degrees of suffering. But it's there forever. Now, you've heard me say this multiple times. Hell is not something that ceases to exist or the people cease to exist there. Just like heaven never ceases to exist. We go from one new thing to the next new thing. And it's going to be a glorious existence. But people who say, no, I don't want to go to heaven. I don't believe I've committed sin. I don't need forgiveness. Those people will go to hell. And, and God said, there's only one or two places we're going to exist. So we have to ask Jesus to save us and you, you just confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord believe in your heart or if you just say God save me that's enough he knows what you mean he knows you don't want to die in your sins he knows that you want to live forever he knows that you're calling him God and the one who is supreme so that's the idea of infallible truths you cannot persuade somebody if they don't want to be persuaded but we are still called to give these infallible proofs to everyone who will listen so going on here it is said here that he was uh, until the day he was taken up verse 2 to heaven after giving instruction through the holy spirit to the apostles he had chosen after suffering he showed himself to these men gave many convincing proofs that he was alive he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of god now part of this infallible proof idea how many people do you need to convince you that something is true well we know what the bible says there has to be at least two or three reliable witnesses, right? I think most of you know there were more than two or three reliable witnesses that saw Jesus after his resurrection. We know that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, there were over 500 people that Jesus appeared to at one time. So 500 people saw him. So if... if just 10 of those 500 came up to you and said, we saw Jesus in the flesh. After the resurrection, he was alive and he talked with us. Would you believe it? 
Is there a mass psychosis out there? What if you had 10 unreliable witnesses that wanted to yell and said, there is no God, and they came up to you and said, there is no God, would you believe them? Well, no, there is an objective standard of truth, and that objective standard of truth is the Bible. The person who would yell at you, they have a subjective standard of truth. They just believe what they want to believe. All of us do that. All of us hold to some standard on the inside. I believe this to be true. And no one's going to convince me otherwise. You know, did I tell you about my conversation with someone um, that they would never vote for Trump? Did I tell you about that? I I had a conversation a few weeks ago with, uh, and the person claims to be, you know, moral and doing what is right and that type of thing and they said well I may not be a Christian but you know I want to do what is right and I said imagine you could vote for somebody that has brought tremendous benefit to the entire country unemployment rates down oil independence gas below two dollars a gallon the economy is just humming along the the races uh, the different races in the United States were all benefiting the unemployment rate like I said was the lowest it had been for all these other races the blacks and the uh, Mexicans the Hispanics and everybody else that they talked about everything was just going good the economy was humming inflation was like at 1.2% I said you could vote for somebody like that even though you don't like them personally or you can vote for somebody that you can tolerate personally but everything is bad there's not one single thing that is good and when I was talking to this person, I, and they w- refused to vote for Trump if he runs, you know, or the Trump or DeSantis, who, whoever it might be. And they said, I will not vote for it. I said, why? Because it will benefit so many people, millions of people, if you vote for him, but you don't like him personally. Why would you not do that? Because I, I just don't like him. I said, I said, well, why don't you like him? Because of the mean tweets. I said, because of the mean tweets? Have you listened to Rosie O'Donnell? Have you turned into The View? They, they called Ron DeSantis. Did I tell you this? They called Ron DeSantis a Nazi. And the guy is a Boy Scout. I'm, he's a JAG attorney. He was in the military. He was Harvard. He was Yale. I mean, everything that he's doing. But he's a Nazi. And I'm thinking... You have mass information psychosis is what you have. You have been listening to somebody and you are convinced this is true, but yet there are several people who would witness to the otherwise. You just won't, do, you just won't vote this way because you don't like them personally. And, and see, this is something where witnesses come along. You have objective truth. You have the evidence there. You could do this, but that is the height of selfishness. Because you want to do it because you don't like it, but you don't care how it affects anybody else. And God came along through the apostles and through Paul, specifically the last half of the book of Acts here. And he showed us that it's a life of dying. Look at all these apostles. They were all martyred except for John. Sawn in half. John was even thrown apparently in boiling oil. And he survived that. Oh, that was a nice jacuzzi, you know, bubbling away. And he just got out of that. And God preserved his life. And so these people, 
are the ones who make attestation to Jesus Christ, two or three witnesses, and we have a multitude of witnesses, not just the 500 who were there. And by the way, in the time of Paul the Apostle, when he wrote 1 Corinthians, it could have easily been refuted that this wasn't the case. They could have their own Snopes back then and checked it out and said, oh, no, that wasn't the case at all. But they didn't have anything like that. No one wrote any letters contesting that. There were several... um, uh, works outside the Bible, extra-biblical works is the word I was looking for, that attest to the fact that Jesus Christ was a real individual and that he was crucified. But we have his disciples giving us this information. We have four Gospels, four Gospels written by four different apostles. We have the other 13 books written by Paul and and the book of Revelation that is there. We have all of the New Testament books and the Old Testament. And it's just like, wow, this is an incredible compilation of infallible proofs and if people don't want to read it okay well they just refuse to believe and god says if you refuse to believe if you refuse to receive forgiveness then you can have what you want you will be uh, assigned to utter darkness now this idea of two or three witnesses in the old testament it was established in deuteronomy chapter 17 verse 6 in the case of death penalty you could not put somebody to death unless you had two or three reliable witnesses to testify against them also just any crime in deuteronomy chapter 19 verse 15 you must establish their crime by the testimony of two or three witnesses so there always has to be witnesses to a crime which is committed and even in church discipline there has to be two or three taken along so that they might witness what's going on so in the case of church discipline if you have to kick somebody out of the church they understand that this is the case and this is a standard throughout old and new testament It is our standard today there must be some sort of witness multiple witnesses to any crime which is committed in order to get in conviction now going on in verse four on one occasion while he was eating with them this is jesus he gave them the command do not leave jerusalem but wait for the gift my father promise which you have heard me speak about for john baptized with water but in a few days you'll be baptized with the holy spirit so john he was baptizing in water and when they baptized he baptized in the jordan river i've been to the jordan river it's deep enough you can get totally underneath the water we have a um, a couple of denominations they prefer to sprinkle in whatever a pour on the head and okay if you want to do that i think the biblical way is dunking but i'm sure god will probably honor that as well but i kind of want to do it the way the bible says it and so at the jordan river john was baptizing people to prepare them for the coming messiah and when we get to acts chapter 19 we'll see that there were disciples of john and they didn't understand who jesus was or even who the holy spirit was and so they weren't even saved but they followed john they were waiting for the messiah well paul shows up and says here's the messiah it's jesus christ but he baptized them in water and paul asked him in chapter 19 well what baptism did you receive and he said john's baptism in water is what we got well there's also the baptism of the holy spirit and that's what the book of acts tells us about the baptism of the holy spirit it says you should be baptized with the holy spirit the idea of being baptized is to be immersed or covered over in something even as john baptized people in water so these disciples would be immersed in the holy spirit now talk about a controversial subject all throughout history this idea of being baptized with the holy spirit the church of christ equates that with water baptism you get 
water baptized, you're baptized with the Holy Spirit, you're saved at that time, you have to do it in their church according to their formula in the name of Jesus only, and all of that is added to the Bible. It doesn't really say that in Scripture. They have added tradition to that. And then if you go to the Catholic Church, you're baptized when you're an infant and the infant doesn't know what's going on. It's the faith of the parents that is being spoken about there. It's not the faith of the individual. But when it comes to the baptism of the Holy Spirit, now we know that for the whole of the New Testament, with maybe the exception of John the Baptist, who was filled with the Holy Spirit inside the womb, we know that the baptism of the Holy Spirit happens after somebody is confessing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. At least that's how it takes place in a chronological order in Scripture. And people don't like to hear that because, understandably so, there have been some wild churches of people swinging from the chandeliers and running up and down the aisles and carrying banners and speaking in multiple tongues, everyone all at the same time, and just going kind of crazy. And I can remember in my church existence, starting out in a church where they did that, and they all spoke in tongues at one time. This is nuts in here. I'm standing around by the way this was at faith chapel when uh, pastor george was there i went there a few times ago this is really weird i mean when he asked everybody to pray at the same time in their own prayer language i'm just going i guess this is right i had no idea what the scripture had to say at that time as a brand i still had my pampers on walking into the sanctuary you know I had no idea what was going on but there are differences different works of the holy spirit there is the indwelling of the holy spirit that talks about that in in the gospel of john there is the filling of the holy spirit that's internal baptism is external You see the difference there? And some people equate baptism with filling. They're two different things. But we want to make them the same thing so we don't feel uncomfortable with those AG people, Assembly of God, that just kind of go nuts out there, especially the oneness Pentecostals. We don't want to deal with them at all. We'll just, they are a call to the oneness Pentecostals, but then there are the Pentecostals that aren't the oneness, that believe in the Trinity, and they just kind of go wild and tie people up until they speak in tongues and get the motorboat running. They say, just start it, you know, and you'll catch on how it's supposed to happen. It just, nutty stuff goes on in the church and it doesn't have to be that way and why were the people baptized in the holy spirit is to be a witness now that word witness comes from the greek word where we get martyr and there are several ways to be witnesses you know you can be a witness in a um, court you know i'm actually getting ahead of myself i don't want to get too far ahead of myself on that so i'm going to leave it at that You have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You have the filling of the Holy Spirit. You have the sealing of the Holy Spirit. All of those things are done by the Holy Spirit. You don't do anything with that. He does it to you to equip you with all of these things like sealing. We are sealed for the day of salvation. God knows, everyone knows in the spiritual realm that we belong to God. We are sealed. And this idea sealed is you take a letter, wax, you dip it in there, you punch down your signet ring, and you are sealed. And it can only be opened by the person it is intended for. 
And of course, we are attended for Jesus Christ. We are his bride. And that will be unsealed when we go to heaven and we have our new bodies. The filling of the Holy Spirit is something that happens over and over and over. It's filling the glass and the glass gets emptied and filling the glass. That's the Holy Spirit works in us. He fills us up for specific works at specific times. The baptism of the Holy Spirit brings to us power to be the witnesses. Now, these are some of just some of the differences, but we'll get into that more. Verse 6 says, so when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times and the dates the Father has set by his own authority. Now, I just heard a message on this. It was a great message. Jews at the time of the... Uh, at the time of Jesus, they were expecting the Messiah. They saw how bad things were in their society for them. They were not ruling over themselves independently. They had the Romans over them, and they were a brutal uh, bunch of people. And uh, they were the ones who were um, depicted in Daniel's vision, the legs and, of iron, legs and thighs of iron. They were just brutal and the Jews were underneath that and they thought this must be the end it is so bad here and people are dying and the the onerous things that they have placed on the people the taxation and what they told them they could do and could not do they just hated it and they were waiting for the Messiah that was the expectation and they were expecting things like are written in the book of Revelation if you didn't know better you would think that they were pre-tribulational, pre-millennial individuals that were writing this before the New Testament was ever put down. They thought the persecution would just be horrendous, just like in the book of Revelation, if you go back in history and look at the people who were writing at the time. But they were so expecting this, when John the Baptist showed up, they went out to him. They, they wanted to know who he was. And he said, you brood of vipers. And, you know, he just insulted them. But who do you say you are? And they said, are you the Christ? And he goes, I am not. And they said, are you the prophet? And he goes, I'm just a voice of one crying in the wilderness. And so he didn't affirm that he was the prophet that was the forerunner to come before Jesus, which was Elijah. And of course, that is in Malachi verse four, chapter 4, verse 5. It says, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. And of course, Jesus came and struck the land with a curse because they rejected him. And John the Baptist was coming in the spirit and power of Elijah. What that meant was, if the Jews received Jesus, John the Baptist would have been considered Elijah. But they rejected him. And so on his second coming, according to the scriptures, it is going to be Elijah that comes. And so that was a foreshadowing. It's just like the abomination which makes desolate that is talked about in the book of Revelation and also in the book of Daniel when that takes place. And Tychus Epiphanes was a foreshadow of that. And I believe he's listed, I think it's in Daniel chapter 8. And that was a foreshadowing to come. He, Antiochus Epiphanes was not the Antichrist, but he foreshadowed the Antichrist, just like John the Baptist was not Elijah, but he foreshadowed Elijah, which would come. And Elijah's going to be here at the end. So that, that's the whole setup here. The Jews thought, this is it. The Messiah's coming. They were looking for him. They were going out. John the Baptist, are you it? They questioned Jesus. Who are you? Who do you say that you are? He never came right out and told them. He, he just basically said, look at the miracles. Who do you think I am? 
And he asked, of course, Peter and the disciples, they said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And he said back to them, God has revealed this to you. No one has told you this. And so Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah that was prophesied to come. And they were looking for the Messiah. They had the chance to receive him, and they did not. And so as far as restoration of the kingdom of Israel, when is that going to take place? That's going to take place in Revelation chapter 20. It says this in the last half of verse 4. It says, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. There's going to be, you heard me go through uh, the book of Matthew, Gospel of Matthew, thousand-year reign of Christ, a literal thousand-year reign of Christ. One thousand years. Can I say it any different? Years that are one thousand, one thousand years, literal. It's going to happen. Some people say, no, we're in the millennium right now. And things are just going to get better and better and better. And Jesus is going to come back. And it's going to be wonderful. No, it's not. Is it turning out like that? Look at the world. Is it getting better? I don't think so. Unless your eyes are closed. Unless you have mass information psychosis. You think it's getting better. It is not getting better. It is just getting worse and worse and worse. And so... Here, Jesus is going to reign for a thousand years. That's when he's going to establish the kingdom. He's going to drop his foot on the Mount of Olives, go over through the gate beautiful, establish his kingdom on the the temple mount there. He's going to be worshipped as God for a thousand years and all the nations will bring their goods to Jerusalem. And by the way, I was telling the youth this, this last week, God, and I've told you before, God loves the nations. He wants the nations. You know, in the new Jerusalem, there are going to be nations. What does that mean? Different, different ethnos, different races. God loves that. And, and we're thinking, well, no, let's just make it all one race. Let's do all the intermarrying. Just make us one. No, God says, no, I want the distinction. It's good. There are things that are good about the races, right? I love Mexican food. Who makes Mexican food? The Chinese? No. I went and had some pho the other night. Pho is good. Cambodia, Vietnam. Oh, the noodle, the rice noodle. Oh, it's so good to have that. And, and just the capabilities. You go to Ethiopia, they can run for days over there. That's why they were in so many track meets and marathons and things like that. They're good. And the Asians with their mathematical capabilities, just fantastic. Well, God likes all of that. That is good. And we have different distinctions between the races. And that's wonderful. Now, if all the races believed in God, oh, it'd be utopia here. But it's never going to happen that way because we are still in the world. And so the tribulation must come first. But then Jesus is going to set up his kingdom for 1,000 years. Verse 8 says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. So as I previously stated, the gospel is going from Jerusalem, that's where Jesus was crucified, to Judea, the area of the Jews, and and it would include eventually all of Israel because we had the split kingdom, and then it would go to Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. And that power, you guys already know what that word power is, right? It is our word for dynamite so you will receive dynamite when the lord comes on you when the holy spirit comes on you and when jesus was here he was the one that would teach us when the holy spirit is here he's the one that teaches us jesus sent the holy spirit the father sent the holy spirit the holy spirit has been here with us he is the one that will be with us forever and he indwells us so going on in verse 8 
once again. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses or you will be my martyrs. And after this, or after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. I believe this is literal, that he was just standing there and he started to rise, only there wasn't an elevator. He just started going up. And of course, we know, I think it begins in about <coughs> verse 11. It says that, that they, they stood there going. Could you imagine seeing somebody do that? If somebody was in front of you and they just said, Whoop! not Chris Angel, you know, he only goes about that far off the ground. Or just goes into the clouds. I would love to do that. Just go into the clouds. But they're standing there. Jesus said, you know, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of Father, Son, all authority in heaven has been given to me, or given to you. And he just goes, that's it. See ya. And he takes off. He's going to come back the same way where the earth is going to go. Oh, and there he comes back down. Now, these disciples, they, they were just, their minds were, you know, they Blown minds by seeing this. Verse 9, or excuse me, verse 10 says, they were looking intently, like, where did he go? Up into the sky as he was going. When suddenly, two men dressed in white stood beside them. They just, zzzzed. they were right there, right next to him. Beam me up, Scotty, type of thing. Take, take me down to the planet. Right there beside him. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? They probably walked up and said, what are you looking at? What is that up there? And it's these two angels that just appear, just materialize right there. Now, we know Jesus already did this. Remember the upper room, the disciples are there, they feared for their lives, and who appears in the room? And I want to give it sound effect, but it's probably silent. It's just, zzz, you know, or do the Star Trek thing where he just, he, he just appears in the room. Imagine somebody just doing that. Imagine Jesus is right there in the aisle, and he just appears to you. Would you just like, oh, cool. I think we would just lose our minds. Something like that happens where he just appears like that. That's what these disciples are experiencing. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there to see that part? Not go through the persecution, but just to see Jesus. Then he says, men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking up in the sky? The same Jesus who had been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go to heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives. On this, It's a Sabbath day's walk from the city. Now, it's not like a full 24 hours or a 12-hour walk from the Mount of Olives to the city of Jerusalem. You stand on the Mount of Olives, you can see the city of Jerusalem. If I had to say how far it was from here, I would say from where I'm standing, if you go to the middle of Lindo Lake, that's how far away it is. Maybe the end of Lindo Lake. So you're on the Mount of Olives, you have the Kidron Valley, which goes down, and then you have the road which led up to the gate, beautiful, and it'd be on the Temple Mount area over there. And the Sabbath day's walk, it's like three quarters of a mile, is all the Jews were allowed to walk in any given day, otherwise it was considered work. And you're not allowed to work on the Sabbath day. That's why they called it a Sabbath day's walk from the city. If you walked any more of that, you were violating the law and you're supposed to be cut off from your people. 
And so uh, it could be about 3,000 feet, maybe a bit more, a half a mile, according to Exodus 16, 29, and Numbers chapter 35, verse 5. And, and so that's what they saw. That's when they went back to Jerusalem. And, of course, Jesus left them at that point, And they were supposed to wait till the day of Pentecost, 50 days after Passover. And that's when they were baptized with the Holy Spirit. That's when they had the cloven tongues of fire appear over their head. That's when they spoke of languages that they had not learned. That's when people heard in their own languages. And there's a debate, well, which was it? Did they speak the language or did they hear the interpretation? And we'll get into all of that. But it's, it, what was taking place here is Jesus was giving the final commission. You were to be witnesses. You were to be martyrs. You can be a witness in a court of law. You can be a witness to history, which takes place out there. You can also be a witness, which means you actually physically die for the witness of somebody. Like Polycarp, who was burned at the stake. And, and I think he's the one that said, you don't have to tie my hands. I'm not going to jump off of this. I'm, I'm just going to be the sacrifice that Jesus wants me to be. You have the ability, as God gives you, to be a witness in any one of those contexts. Are you being a witness? That's the thing. You should look for those opportunities. I repeat this so much you're probably sick of me here, sick of hearing me say this. We have to open our mouths. We have to know what the scripture has to say. We need to go to the Bible studies. We need to equip ourselves for what tasks lie ahead. Because we know the destruction that is coming. We know how wonderful heaven is going to be. And if you keep that information to yourself and say, hey, you want to live forever? Ask the person. You could walk up to somebody randomly on the street. I'll give you that challenge. Maybe I'll try it this week. Walk up to someone randomly and say, do you want to live forever? I guess I have to do it. Huh? I'll, I'll go find somebody, go up to them and say, would you like to live forever? And see what they have to say. You might be surprised. And if you say, well, I can't really explain it, bring them to church. You know, we'll explain it here. We'll pawn them off to somebody. We'll give them to Vince and Vince will get them saved. You know, or to Pat. We can do that. We are called to be witnesses of this. We are supposed to continue this to the next generation and that generation to the next one, just as Paul started when he started going on his missionary journeys. My prayer for you is that you have this desire and you're able to subdue the flesh about opening your mouth and speaking to somebody, giving them the gospel of Jesus Christ, telling them how much God loves them and the judgment which is to come. You can't give the good news without giving the bad news. If you give somebody that information and they reject it, you have been faithful. You have been the wise servant. If you give it to somebody and they accept it, you will have a crown because you know how to save people. You have done the task the Lord has given you to do. Let's pray. Father, we... Always, as your word says, we give you thanks. We give you thanks for Luke, the physician, who wrote this information down. The doctrine which is contained in the book of Acts and the rest of the Old and New Testament. Father, may we understand this completely or enough to communicate this to others that they might be saved. For this is our task, to make disciples. Father, help us in this. Help us to study. Help us to gain friendships that we might lead people in the way of righteousness. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said.
Amen. Please stand.